Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by David Ferris, author of the new book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Progressives Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Jordan. Yeah, of course. We're glad to have you. I think you provide a very fresh perspective on the Democratic Party, one that's really counter to a lot of what we hear from Democratic politicians and party leadership. In your book, you make a case against bipartisanship, saying that Democrats should, as you put it, fight dirty, not just for the sake of power, but also for democracy itself. Could you tell us what brought you to this conclusion? You know, I think one thing was just sort of living through the last 10 years of American politics and seeing Republicans choose this uh, this pretty ruthless path of pursuing like procedural warfare and voter suppression and like, you know, stealing a seat in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and hoping, you know, again and again and again, that the Republicans would be punished for this, you know, and ultimately when they weren't, you know, I had to kind of take a look as an academic and as an observer and and conclude that what they did worked, um, that the voters ultimately didn't care that much about sort of the, the manipulation of, of procedures uh, in the election system. And uh, feeling like, you know, Democrats really, really have to fight back. I mean, I think the, the second piece of the genesis of this is just waking up after the 2016 election, feeling despair, not because not just because this like terrible human being had won the presidency uh, along with Congress, but uh, feeling like, you know, here's another election that we actually won. <laughs> um, and yet we lost anyway because of these sort of antiquated um, electoral procedures that we use. So, so the book is a combination of thinking through, you know, how, Dem- how Democrats can sort of learn from Republicans, fight a little bit harder procedurally within the constitutional order but also institute some reforms that, you know, I don't really think these things are fighting dirty necessarily. They're just sort of evening the electoral playing field. So what are the proposals you make in your book? Um, Well, so I like to sort of divide the book into two pieces. Um, One is a series of reforms that I think could be implemented, you know, within the first couple of months of a new Democratic administration in D.C. That's things like a modern Voting Rights Act. There's a really, you know, inspirational effort taking place right now in this country to to expand voter access, pass automatic voter registration laws, for instance. You know, we're one of the few countries in the world that has an opt-in rather than an opt-out system for getting registered to vote. Um, and, and there's activists and um, all, all over the country trying to change that on the state level. Uh, I think that's really great. Uh, there's a lot of activism around the issue of gerrymandering. Um, I think that that's fantastic, too. Um, but, the, but a lot of these problems are amenable to a, to a national law. The, the elections clause of the Constitution very clearly gives Congress the right um, to regulate how states conduct their federal elections. And so we could pass a law that eliminates uh, these uh, voter ID laws uh, that, that have the, the result of suppressing the vote in marginalized communities in this country. Um, it could establish a holiday for federal elections. It could eliminate these felony disenfranchisement laws. You know, I think we saw in Virginia in November how transformative it is when you uh, re-enfranchise ex-felons. Uh, Governor McAuliffe uh, I think ultimately re-enfranchised 170,000 people in Virginia. And not only is it the right thing to do, uh, because depriving people permanently of the right to vote is just completely flies in the face of what is supposed to be the spirit of the criminal justice system. But it's also good for Democrats. You know, you saw Democrats blow out their polling projections, uh, but I don't think that those two things are unrelated. Again, all of these things are amenable to a national law that could be passed within the first month of a new administration. Um, I think it would bring millions of new people into the process. It would reduce cynicism. It's the moral and ethical thing to do to, to have more people involved in, in our democracy. And then the book has a series of proposals that are 
you know, uh, a little bit more of a project. Um, so uh, one of those things would be breaking up the state of California into seven pieces. And the, the reason that I want to do that has to do with the structure of equal representation in the Senate. As you know, uh, all states, no matter how big they are, have the same two senators. So 38 million people in California, 700,000 people in Wyoming, and they all get the same two senators. That has the effect of really giving some of these small rural states incredible power uh, in our politics and then depriving people in places like California of that power. So that at this point, 30 or 31 uh, Republican-leaning states and, and 19 or 20 Democratic-leaning states. So that in a neutral partisan environment, Democrats are going to lose the Senate more often than they will win it. And over time, that's inexorably going to drive public policy off to the right um, if Republicans control one of the branches of the government more often than they don't. One of the biggest problems with voting rights goes back to the Supreme Court. Back in 2013, a 5-4 decision by the Supreme Court led to the Voting Rights Act being really dismantled, which gave states the ability to change voting practices without federal preclearance, which is why we've seen them enact all these voter suppression techniques. And, you know, we've kind of seen them be shot down in court, but it's kind of like a whack-a-mole system at this point. And so your idea for packing the Supreme Court and packing the courts in general, could you explain why that's important? And what are the policy stakes there? Sure. I mean, appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court are these incredibly like high stakes and a lot of ways zero-sum battles between the parties at this point. And, and the reason for that is not just that the U.S. Supreme Court has the ability to set laws passed by Congress aside or by the states aside as unconstitutional, because they, you know, they have lifetime tenure. You know, they call it the feet-first rule, right? Like they can, you can stay in there until you die and get carried out of your office feet-first. And that's, you know, that's become a real problem for American democracy. You know, when the Constitution was written, you know, life expectancy was much, much shorter than it was today. Uh, Up until modern history, people in the Supreme Court just died pretty regularly um, and created these openings on the court. Um, It also used to be the case that people would serve on the court for for much less, uh, much less time than they do today. Um, So the average amount of time that each justice has spent on the court has gone up and up and up since the 1960s. In any case, the, the appointments to the court give the president of the United States the ability to to influence public policy long after he or she has left office because of the enormous powers of the court. And if you look at sort of the last 30 years of American history, you know, Democrats have won the popular vote for the presidency in six of the last seven elections. If you go back to 1992, and you add up all the votes for the U.S. Senate. Um, Democrats have won 30 million more votes over that time period than Republicans have, which to me says, you know, the American people, not that this is the, the number one issue on their mind when they're voting, but I think in as much as the Senate and the presidency are the institutions that staff the courts, the American people, I think, have spoken very clearly uh, over the last 30 years that they want Democrats to staff the federal judiciary, and they have not gotten to do that. And then, you know, there's been this tit-for-tat escalation in the, in the court wars where increasingly uh, presidents don't get to make court appointments in the last two years of, of an eight-year term or even a four-year term, particularly if the Senate is controlled by the opposition party. Uh, and in each of these escalations, it's like Republicans have, have taken it to the next level in terms of denying the president the right to fill these seats. So I think in the last two years of Barack Obama's presidency, he only got to fill 20 seats uh, on the district and appellate court, which is crazy. Um, and that meant that there were hundreds of openings uh, for President Trump to fill when he came into office, which is exactly what he did. And then you add that to the to the Merrick Garland fiasco, where Republicans just invented a new rule out of thin air that you can't fill a seat on the Supreme Court in an election year. And that's, you know, they weren't wrong legally, right? Like the Senate doesn't, there's nothing in the Constitution that says the Senate has to consider the president's nominees. This is really a problem with the way that the Constitution was written, in my humble opinion. 
Um, but they were right that they didn't have to do it. And if they played hardball, um, they kept the seat open. And here we are. You know, they stole the, the swing seat on the Supreme Court. I think that the sort of the escalation and normative warfare together with the fact that the American people really have wanted Democrats to make these appointments, I think gives Democrats the right to add seats to the Supreme Court the next time they're in power. Because again, there's nothing in the Constitution about the number of seats on the Supreme Court, really not very much in the Constitution about the courts at all. Uh, it's, a, it's astonishingly big uh, in terms of language about the, the powers of the courts, the structure of the courts. I do recommend that. I also recommend that, that the party should offer Republicans a truce first um, in the form of a constitutional amendment to eliminate lifetime tenure on the Supreme Court. And I, I think that that would be a really magical reform for our politics because it would give every president the right to nominate two justices per four-year term. This is based on a law uh, from an organization called Fix the Court, um, which is located in D.C. That would really lower the temperature around these appointments, right? It would make them less zero-sum. Everybody knew that next time around, their president would get to make two, two picks to the courts. I think it would lessen the extent to which the court can, over time, drift so far away from the center of American public opinion. And then, um, like they did during the New Deal, uh, strike down provision after provision that has broad support from the American people, but is opposed by by the majority on the court. You've also written about how abolishing the electoral college isn't good enough for our version of proportional representative democracy or what we're aiming for in proportional representative democracy. Why is that? And how do we need to go further? Well, the electoral college is really, really a deep and tricky problem because it is written into the constitution. And because at this point, the Republicans perceive it as benefiting them. It's not going anywhere in terms of a constitutional amendment to get rid of this thing, unless this is the only way I think that we could amend the constitution and get rid of the electoral college. Unless a Democrat wins uh, the electoral college and loses the popular vote to a Republican, then we'd be even. And then I think Republicans would know what it feels like, you know, to win an election that you lose. And uh, I think that there'd be some real movement on it if that happens. But, you know, that's not super likely because it's only happened, you know, like four times in American history anyway. And there is a movement out there called the, the National Popular Vote Compact. Uh, states, so states pass a law that would go into effect if enough states totaling 270 electoral votes pass this law that says that they will give their electoral votes to the popular vote winner, no matter who wins their state. But I think it's like that would end up in court and we'd have like Bush v. Gore on steroids. So if that if that, if that law goes into effect um, and we have a popular vote, uh, electoral vote disjunction again, and the states do this. I don't really know what will happen. I mean, it will, it will be tied up for months at least, and court proceedings will probably ultimately fall before the Supreme Court. And if the conservatives control the Supreme Court, my guess is they would rule in whatever way <laughs> would give them a Republican president, just like they did in 2000. So, I, you know, I support the National Popular Vote Compact, but I don't, I'm, I'm a little bit not terribly optimistic about its, its chances of really transforming the system. I think one way around the electoral college problem is to create more states, more Democratic-leaning states, and thus more Democratic electoral votes. So there's, you know, Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico are two states that have held referendums to join the union. The, the constitutional process is really simple. It's just it's an act of Congress. You know, voila, there's a state. I don't think there's any small-d Democratic justification for people in D.C. or Puerto Rico to be American citizens, but then deprived of voting representation in Congress. Um, you know, the tragedy in, in Puerto Rico and the sort of racist and incredibly inept response to Hurricane Maria, really, to me, is evidence that it's, it's obvious, right, that like nobody in D.C. has to it has to answer to, to the people of Puerto Rico. And the only, uh, you know, the only viable way out of that is for Puerto Rico to, to join the union, to become a state on equal footing with Texas. 
uh, to be able to send representatives to DC who can who can raise hell when when something horrible like this happens. And so again, uh, the book is full of things that are like the right thing to do, <laughs> um, but they're also benefit the Democratic Party. So I like to say, if we had made DC and Puerto Rico states ten years ago, um, Democrats would control the Senate right now. Um, you know, that's just the the basic math. Uh, is that bringing these uh, these territories into the union would, would really benefit the Democratic Party in addition to relieving like a, a long-standing sort of moral stand on our democracy. That's in, that's in terms of the Senate. Uh, obviously, a, a, a bunch of new states creates new more electoral votes. So if you had seven Californias instead of one, um, you'd have 12 more electoral votes coming out of the territory of California plus, plus Puerto Rico's electoral votes. DC already has them, of course. So I, I don't know. I uh, off the top of my head, I think it'd probably be seven, between seven and nine electoral votes coming out of um, Puerto Rico. And if you, you, there was a great piece about this on 538 recently, which is like winning the popular vote and losing the electoral colleges is a real possibility for Democrats moving forward just in terms of the way votes are distributed right now. But if we added uh, 19 electoral votes to our column, it makes it much, much less likely that this would ever happen again. It wouldn't have prevented it wouldn't have prevented 2016, but it would make it much, much less likely moving forward. So that's just sort of the answer to the electoral college. But I can also talk about Proportional representation in the House of Representatives. Yes, also, please. That was yeah. my next question. Yeah, you know, as you know, that the the in political science, the system that we use in this country is called single member district plurality (SMDP), and we hold 435 separate elections to the House. If you have six people running for a House seat, you know, you can win that seat with 35 percent. You don't need a majority. So that ha- that has a number of effects. One of the one of which is to reduce the number of of major political parties who have a real chance of winning office in this country, because this, this system is really how third parties with like stable, but relatively equally distributed support throughout the country. So, you know, imagine a green party that had, let's engage in fantasy land here, like 15% support all over the country. Um, and they run a candidate in every house district. Uh, every one of their candidates wins roughly 15% of the vote. Uh, they get nothing. Uh, they will lose every single one of those races. And that's, you know, that's a problem. Uh, because most, you know, about 60% of Americans have consistently said that they want a third or fourth choice on election day. Anybody, uh, and under current circumstances, anybody considering voting third party, I will sit down over a beer and try to talk them out of it. Um, but that's because of the electoral system, not because I'm like, you know, hostile to, to third or fourth parties in theory. So anyway, the other problem is that it often has led to disjunctures between the overall aggregate number of votes for each party and the number of seats that they get in the House of Representatives. So I don't know, I don't know how many people remember this, but in 2012, uh, Democrats won more seats for the House of Representatives in 2012 than, than Republicans did. Uh, they won the national popular vote by about a point, and yet they came out of that election with a 30-something seat deficit in the House of Representatives. I like to ask people to think about like how different the last 10 years of American history could be. Barack Obama and Democrats had two more years to actually make public policy instead of everything running aground in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, you know, like it doesn't it doesn't matter what wing of the Democratic Party you're from. Like it would have been better <laughs> than what happens, you know. Um, and it's not just; it's just uh, it's crazy, and it's made worse by gerrymandering. Because uh, after 2010, Republicans set off on this extremely ingenious and extremely successful effort to draw the district lines in states where they held uh, the state legislature and the governorship to their advantage. And there's been, of course, there's been a lot of litigation about this recently. Pennsylvania's Supreme Court threw out the map that Republicans drew there earlier this year, in part because Pennsylvania is an evenly divided state uh, in terms of uh, electoral outcomes there. But they've been sending 13 Republicans and five Democrats to D.C. Places where they were most successful at this were like North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, 
I'm forgetting one. Uh, but those are the states that give that have given Republicans this like sort of insurmountable advantage in the House of Representatives. This is one of the big reasons why people think that Democrats need to win the popular vote in November by six to eleven points in order to take back the House of Representatives, which is just it's just nuts when you think about it. The book is premised on the idea that like uh, the unique incompetence and malevolence and like stupidity of this administration might deliver, despite these obstacles, might deliver Democrats unified power in D.C. between now and 2021. Um, and when they get there, if they don't address some of these structural deficits, they're probably just going to get pushed right back out of power in 2022. So the, the reform that I recommend in the book, and, and again, the, the gimmick of the book is that everything I'm recommending here is, is fully constitutional, right? You don't need an amendment. Um, it's not going to get tied up in endless court challenges. And there's nothing in the Constitution about how House districts should be drawn. So there's a there's a reform. It's actually before Congress. It's sponsored by Representative Don Byers of Virginia called the Fair Representation Act. And what it would do, so instead of having 435 separate elections for the House, we would draw larger districts that would elect three or five representatives out of each district. So the Fair Representation Act would keep the number of people in the House at 435, but it would elect them through three or five member districts in most in most places. There's some there's some states that are so small that they they could still only have one, but most districts in the country would elect three or five people. Um, using something called ranked choice voting. Uh, there have been some stories about this recently because Maine has, is experimenting with this form of voting. Um, there's some municipalities that do this, uh, like the Twin Cities. And uh, the way it works is instead of voting for one person, you rank the candidates on the ballot from one to X, depending on the number of seats that there are. You know, let's see, take a fantasy, you know, house district of five people. You'd have like Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Greens, like maybe the Working Families Party, all running a list of five people uh, that you can rank order. And, and so you could, as a voter, you could you could vote strategically. You could vote with your heart for like the Working Families Party, rank the Democrats second or third, or, you know, there's a lot of different ways it could go. But when if your candidate does not make the cut, um, instead of throwing your ballot out, they take your second choice and they give your ballot to that person. And if the second choice is gone, they take your third choice and they give your ballot to that person. It's, yeah, it's pretty magical. Um, it's pretty cool. It takes some time to educate the voters about how it works, obviously, but it would lead, A, it would lead to much more proportional results um, in terms of like votes cast and, and seats held ultimately for, for the parties. Uh, it might make possible coalition governments in the House between uh, Democrats and, and Greens and Working Family Party, uh, or on the other side of the aisle, you know, Republicans and Libertarians. The Republican Party might split up into the, sort of the Trump faction and the, you know, whatever is left of Mitt Romney's Republican Party. And not much. Not much, yeah. Sean Kasich and like eight other people, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, they've really been eclipsed over the last year and in ways that are pretty shocking to me. In any case, one really great thing it would do is it would eliminate gerrymandering from the face of the earth. The people at Fair Vote, they hired a data wizard, they said gerrymander this map, and they couldn't do it. It would take this process of, of politicians picking their voters, as, as David Daly has said, out of the process altogether. And I, I think that'd be pretty great. I mean, I think that the Supreme Court may, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, they may strike down the Wisconsin map and, uh, and the Maryland map, uh, but I don't know what standard they're going to replace it with. And I'm very skeptical that that standard will be fair, like as fair to Democrats as we need it to be. And the other problem is that like we increasingly live apart, you know, like Democrats all live together in these urban areas. Uh, you know, I live in Chicago. I don't have any Republican friends. It's not like I wouldn't have a Republican friend, but I just don't know. I, like, I haven't seen one in years, you know? Um, yeah. People in, yeah. People in the exurbs and rural areas are, are increasingly monolithically Republican. And it, that actually makes it hard in terms of drawing fair districts. So it's, it's not just gerrymandering. Uh, there's actually a great article on the Fair Vote website called exactly that. 
it's not just gerrymandering. Um, it's the way that we live apart, and it's the, it's the consequences of the electoral procedures that we use. I think the Democrats, if they have power, should enact this reform, even though it might create a third-party competitor for them. I think that it would mean that, that Democrats would be serving in the majority in some capacity more often than they would if they don't pursue this reform. And there's nothing like more boring than being a member of the House Minority NTC. You know, a lot of this is contingent upon the idea that you know, Democrats are better than Republicans, which, you know, I'm not going to disagree with. But something that I've written a lot about and I've thought a lot about is the Democratic Party, or at least a faction of the Democratic Party, which I would say is the majority of Democrats in Congress right now, that is just the Republican Party light. It's just Republicans, but like slightly better slightly more liberal on social issues, but like when it comes down to, you know, imperialism, capitalism, they're all on the same page. They vote for the same budgets overwhelmingly. You you didn't see Democrats really put up a fight with the DREAM Act during the budget negotiation process. What what are we aiming for in the Democratic Party? What does a Democratic majority mean if Democrats are just Republican light? And how do we avoid that in the first place? Yeah, that's a, that's a great and really important question. I feel like I've been watching two Democratic parties for the last year and a half. You know, on the one hand, there's the Democratic Party that kept the whole caucus together for the ACA fight. that kept the whole caucus together for the taxes fight. And I, I have to say that I was shocked that they were able to do that. They hung together. They didn't even release like you know, Joe Manchin's vote for these things. And I, I thought in some ways, I don't think that they've gotten quite enough credit for that. At the same time, um, there's the Democratic Party that was on display last week, the, the rollback of Dodd-Frank, Democrats in the House vote for this thing. Uh, and then we had Democrats in March, uh, passed the Senate first, and we had Demo 17 Democrats in the U.S. Senate voted to roll back Dodd-Frank. And the list of Democrats just blows my mind. Like Tim Kaine is on that list, like Mark Warner is on that list. Um, both senators from New Hampshire are on that list. And there's there's three things that are shocking and, and, and just like blood boiling about that. One is they got no concessions in return for these votes. Other is that they could have like let they could have defeated the bill and still let like McCaskill and Manchin and Heifkamp vote for it, stuff like that, you know. So the, it's like what I see as a party that is being transformed. It's it's happening slowly. It's happening like before our eyes. There are a lot of useless Democrats in the House and in the Senate still. People who, again, as you say, it's better for them to be in control than the opposition, but who at the end of the day, I don't think are like especially committed to progressive policy change in a meaningful way. You know, my only answer to that is that the party has to be transformed from the inside. Like you could replace the Democrats with the Greens or the Working Families Party, but like I think the world would be torched in the interim. Like it would take 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in 20 years, you know, like Miami might not exist. Uh, you know, there's a lot of bad things that can happen if Republicans are allowed to continue to rule this country for another 25 years. So I guess the short answer to your question is like all of us as individuals that really believe in progressive change um, need to work for, like we need to work to elect candidates who really share our values. I'm not from Illinois, but I live in Illinois and we had primaries here in March. And, you know, I did some work for a state senator named Dan Biss, who was, uh, was running for governor. And he's just, I would say he's an ordinary guy. He's a former University of Chicago professor. Um, but he was uh, he was a he was a real progressive, you know. Like he didn't take any corporate money. Uh, kind of ran like a Bernie Sanders type campaign, and he got you know he just got like hammered in the election by this billionaire named Jimmy Prisker, uh, who won the Democratic nomination. I think like ninety eight percent by throwing cash at it. So that was depressing because they you know when you look at their like well what are they saying about policy it looks very similar, 
But I do think that there's something really problematic about the overwhelming majority of our representatives being super rich uh, or being millionaires or being like incredibly successful lawyers. Probably, even if they say all the right things, I still don't think they get it. You know, like I don't think J.B. Pritzker, like like any any part of his his soul, like really understands what it's like to struggle in the world in the in the way that the rest of us do. And it's I, I just don't think that you can make good progressive public policy from a position of like a lifetime privilege. You know, yeah. So there are days where I think we've got the party on the right track. There are days where I get depressed about it, and I think that we don't. And it's another reason why I think it's so important if, if Democrats are, are sort of afforded this opportunity to have total power in DC, which is due to all these structural barriers that I talk about. It's actually pretty unlikely. But if we get it in 2021, we have to we have to do something really important with it. And that's why that's why packing the Supreme Court is so important. Because again, we're not getting a constitutional amendment to get rid of Citizens United. Uh, it's not going to happen. So it has to be run back up through the court and reversed. Um, and the only way to make that happen is to is to put a liberal majority on the court. And it was one of the reasons I was so so devastated in 2016. Again, you know, no matter what, what wing of the party you're from, whatever you thought of Hillary Clinton, like we had, like the Democrats had the opportunity for the first time since I have been alive, since I have like drawn breath on this earth, uh, we've had a chance to have a liberal court majority. And that liberal court majority could have done a lot of really transformative things. I mean, I, I think I see some uh, I see some evidence that the party is being transformed. You, you can see that in the way that all the 2020 contenders are, are sort of talking about single payer. At the same time, just sort of like the sort of leftover Democratic Party from, from the late 90s and, and the 2000s, uh, there are still a lot of those people in power. And I think that they still have the same instincts that they had uh, maybe they're being pushed to the left a little bit right now by Trump, but I don't know what will happen when they get back into power. So to the extent that we can like safely get rid of some of these people, man, I'd love to. I get rid of, I mean, you know, like unelect them. Not, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not any Second Amendment remedies. That's what I think about the party. But for now, it's what we got, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. So you said that you were really surprised by these liberal votes to roll back Dodd-Frank by folks like Tim Kaine. And I think that gets to the really huge issue in representative democracy in that, you know, in the United States, studies have shown that popular opinion, even opinion among, you know, the constituency that you're supposed to be representing, whether that be Democratic voters or Republican voters, doesn't necessarily have any sway on public outcome. How do we change that? And how do these reforms you're proposing play into having a democratic party that is more small d democratic? I mean, one of the really, really darkly fascinating things that about the last uh, several years of American history is that the Republicans have like destroyed a political science theory called the, the theory of the median voter. And the, the median voter theory suggests that the ruling the ruling party will eventually settle on the policy preferences of the median voter. That is, you know, like, because they want to get reelected, they will find, you know, a set of policy compromises that appeals to the most number of people. Um, and then those people will return them into power. Uh, that's, that theory really has, like, not survived contact with this Republican Congress and this Republican president. Um, because what one of the things that's most astonishing to me is that they keep doing things that are opposed by the American people, like two to one, but in public opinion surveys, people wanted to preserve the ACA, you know, but two to one, it was a turnaround from the election, but that's, that's where opinion was when they were trying to undo the law. The public was against the tax law by like staggering margins. Uh, the public supports the a Clean Dream Act by staggering, you know, like eight to one margins. And you just see again and again, Republicans are just, they just don't care. And one of the things I think that's so important about some of the proposals in my book is that some of these, particularly the reform of the House of Representatives and particularly the Voting Rights Act stuff, would make it possible to hold people accountable again. One of the big problems 
that I see in the U.S. House of Representatives is that you have like 300 people in the House who um, never have to face anyone except their own primary voters because there are so many safe seats in the House that are decided by uh, landslide margins, 25 points, 30 points, 40 points, that those representatives, they know they can never lose a general election. You know, I mean, unless they're caught with like a dead body or something, uh, or they, they, they did something so horrendous that, that, uh, that they're forced out of office. If they act like human beings under normal circumstances, even if they pass like horrendous law after horrendous law after horrendous law that is hated by the American people, we can't get rid of them. And so any reform that reduces the number of safe seats in the House of Representatives and increases the number of competitive seats is really, really important because it will change the behavior of, the, of people in office. If you have to face voters under the Fair Representation Act, there is no way that you will uh, vote for legislation that is opposed by an eight to one majority of the American people. It just won't happen anymore. I mean, I, okay, that's categorical. It'll still happen, but I think it'll, 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 that behavior will be reduced. The other great thing about it, and um, the reason that I actually, I actually want to go further than the, uh, than the fair vote people do, I think we should double the size of the house. And that would make it uh, even harder for the wealthy to spread their, their money around. And all like if there were 870 races for the house of representatives rather than 435, uh, and they were all competitive, then, you know, your Sheldon Adelson, like the $30 million from Sheldon Adelson does not go as far as it does now because that money can be targeted at 20 or 25 races in November that the Republicans know are critical to them holding the House. Even if we don't get to overturn Citizens United right away or something, right? If Adelson has to divide his scratch between uh, 870 different races, it's not going to go anywhere near as far. Right? I think it would it would reduce the aggregate influence of the wealthy in our politics. And I think that the, the influence of wealthy people, the fact that we keep electing wealthy people, I think that has a lot to do with why our government is not governing in the interests of the people. It's why they are ignoring the clear wishes of the people. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to make the case that like uh, elected representatives should 100% of the time just like be led around uh, by the nose by their voters. You know, that's a theory uh, in political science called uh, the theory of uh, trustee representation, right? Which is like, uh, sorry, a delegative representation where, you know, like I'm just there to do what the people want me to do. And there's a competing theory called the trustee representation theory, which is that occasionally representatives um, get to make decisions that might not be popular because they think it's the right thing to do. Okay. So in my mind, we've swung way too far towards this trustee vision of representative democracy, people that we've entrusted <laughs> With, uh, with that responsibility are not even acting with any, I think, any idea of like enlightened public interest. It's not like they're like, well, the people want to do something really stupid and I'm going to stop them. It's like, you know, this guy paid me to vote like this. Uh, but if I, if I want to get reelected, I have to keep, you know, I have to keep doing the bidding of the NRA. I have to keep doing the bidding of, uh, of the Adelson sort of billionaire class. Um, and it's all just like when you wrap it all together, it's all like just extremely destructive. We don't know exactly who these people are who don't vote, but there were 90 million of them who sat out the 2016 election. Some of them were disenfranchised, uh, but a lot of them just didn't care. And it, there's one thing that we know is that proportional representation increases voter turnout. Uh, that's a pretty clear uh, data point from, from the comparative literature. And so the people that don't vote are predominantly sort of marginalized, less well-educated, uh, less wealthy people. And as of today, we know in which direction those folks generally swing in our, in our national politics, and that's towards the left. So more voters, more representatives, more states, more responsive democracy. You know, a better world is possible, possible through things that are perfectly constitutional, that are, in, in most cases, just acts of Congress signed by a president that could have a really deeply transformative effect on our politics. So, you know, again, some of it's a, a, a little bit harder to, to envision. Some of it's like month one stuff uh, that we should really hold them accountable for. So 
Um, the book is really just kind of trying to start a conversation about some of these things so that we can we can have a, a better, more equitable politics and more equitable society. Hey, everybody. This is Nathan from Millennial Politics. We're going to take a quick break because we want to tell you about our new sponsor. A new company called C-Note is an award-winning social enterprise that has created a new way to save where you can earn up to 35 times more on your savings, all while increasing economic opportunity in local communities across America. The average C-Note customer earned an extra $400 last year compared to traditional savings products. So not only do you earn more with C-Note, but every dollar that you invest drives positive social impact. So instead of funding big bank bonuses, your money is going to help female and minority entrepreneurs start small businesses, build affordable housing, and support other community development projects. With C-Note, you earn up to 2.5% while building a more inclusive economy, one community investment at a time. Sign up today at mycnote.com slash politics. Again, that's my, the letter C, note, N-O-T-E dot com slash politics. And know that C-Note does not charge any fees. There are no minimums. And sign up take less than five minutes. Check them out. So something we haven't quite touched upon yet is how race plays into all of this. You know, I think Donald Trump has made it abundantly clear just how racialized American politics are for folks who weren't aware of it. But, you know, he he didn't start this at all. It's always been the case. Our two-party system has been especially racialized over the past half a century. How does race play into all of these reforms and all of the suppression we've been talking about that's already going on and been going on for the past few decades? That's a that's a deep question. Let me take the I mean, let me take the shallow end of it first, which is to which is to talk about how um, how race intersects with voting. You know, it didn't it didn't always used to be the case that that African Americans voted for Democrats by you know nine to one margins. It was not always the case that Latinos voted for Democrats by you know six to four or seven to three margins. That has been a process that's unfolded over the last half century. The Latino piece of that is really that's only like ten years old. That that kind of stuff, right? As Democrats have moved to embrace, I think again, like slowly but surely, moved to embrace their role as sort of the preferred party of minorities in this country because they they are in favor of certain policies um, to to address structural racism. You know, was this true 25 years ago? No. Is it true today? Yes. It's very clear, right? When you have uh, a group of people voting for one party, nine to one, uh, the other party looks at that and says like, wow, if they're terrible people, which, uh, which uh, many national Republicans are terrible people, they will look at that situation and be like, how can we, how can we have fewer of those people voting? And that is behind the drive uh, uh, towards these cookie cutter voter ID laws in particular that started getting passed in the Bush administration. They're really, again, they're like darkly ingenious because an ordinary person who's not super into politics and you're like, hey, I just want I just want to make sure that the voter is the voter that they say they are. Like, what's what, you know, like, mo- like most people who are not poor and marginalized have an ID, like have, have a driver's license, right? Or they have an ID. And in fact, like, it's sort of difficult for most people to imagine not having a driver's license uh, if you're not in Manhattan. Um, so it's it's got this sort of like, uh, intuitive logic to it, where it's like, well, yeah, of course. I'd be like, yeah, of course you should have an idea about, right? Like, why shouldn't you? But w- what we know about these laws is they were explicitly designed to drive down turnout in, in poor and minority communities because poorer Americans are the most likely to, to be constantly moving around. Uh, they're the most likely to not have a car or access to a car and thus who needs a driver's license. 
and, and a lot of you have to pay for these things. You know, they're not free uh, as they should be. So when I renew my driver's license in Illinois, it's, I, I don't even know what the number is. It doesn't matter to me. Um, not like because I'm rich, but because I can afford $15 to renew my license, but some people can't, you know, um, and it's the people that can't afford this documentation that are precisely the ones that are driven out of the system. And that precisely, precisely that intersection between sort of structural racism in America, poverty and inequality, and then our, our democratic system where Republicans have decided that the way that they can stay in power is to reduce the number of, uh, of minorities who vote. Um, and to me, it really is that simple. There may be elaborate justifications in terms of like, well, we have to make sure that we prevent fraud, but voter fraud is not something that happens on a scale that is remotely uh, significant enough to justify any of this. You know, probably a hand, like a handful of people in every presidential election in every state actually do this because it's a felony. Uh, you know, to like, to get, like I'm going to vote in Illinois and then I'm going to like rush into Indiana and pretend to be somebody else so I can get one extra vote into, in, into the state of Indiana. It's like demented. It's like, who makes that calculus? Like, who risks jail time uh, to pour one extra vote into a presidential election? Like, it's, it's crazy. So anyway, it's a fake crisis, right? There is no voter fraud crisis. The big, the big risk of American democracy is not voter fraud. It's, it's, it's manipulation of electoral data and electoral tallies. I'm not saying that's been happening. I'm saying that's a much more significant risk of democracy than like one person in every state, you know, pretending to be somebody else or voting as a dead person or something. Because African Americans and Latinos and other minorities increasingly gravitate towards the, the Democratic Party, uh, and Republicans have just like no compunction at all about engaging in practices that are just ruthlessly designed to suppress the vote, even if they're technically legal. That's why we need a reform like this. Yeah, it's been really depressing the last two years watching the way attitudes that I always assumed were, were there in the National Republican Party are now just sort of out. You know, like the president calls people animals, sets up a, a you know a crime reporting process specifically for, for undocumented immigrants, using language uh, to describe uh, folks like this, that it's explicitly designed to be to press emotional buttons, you know, like uh, calling them illegal aliens or something, right? And yeah, it's been building for a while, but I think that the Trump administration has really, has really quadrupled down on this kind of language. Uh, and I think every time they get away with it, <laughs> you know, it just emboldens them um, to know that, like, oh, hey, we were at 42% popularity the day before we called people animals, and look at where we're at 42% the day after. Like, who cares, you know? And that's... Uh, one of the many reasons I think it's so, so important that this Republican Party be repudiated in November. Otherwise, this this behavior is is, is really it's going to be legitimated. And that's uh, that's scary. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the biggest roadblocks your proposals would face is kind of the the compromised minded Democrats, the pundit class who's saying on the New York Times op-ed pages, get back to the center, mm -hmm. you know, reach out to Republican voters, reach out to centrists. What pushback have you gotten on your ideas from within the Democratic Party? And how do you respond to these criticisms? You know, I don't I don't know whether Chuck and Nancy have a, co a copy of my book or anything, but <laughs> I think that there's a... <laughs> There's a natural, I think, you know, I think the center of gravity within the Democratic Party is still like, uh, sort of like, wow, bipartisanship would be so nice. Um, that's the way the country is supposed to be run. I, you know, that that sort of whatever vestiges of that attitude uh, that I used to have have been like, have been beaten out of me over the last four or five years. There's there's a reluctance to, uh, to mess with informal rules, you know, and there are, there's a lot of sort of, there's a long history of a sort of a normative understanding between the parties that that we don't you know manipulate national election laws you know that, that we don't do things that might be that might be legal but are but are really transgressive in a lot of ways and it's you know it's kind of 
I think that the I think the existence of that consensus is a little bit oversold in the sort of like uh, democracy and peril literature. Like that's another story for another day, I guess, because I don't even think America was a democracy until like 1965. So anything that happened before 1965, we talk about it as democracy. I think it's preposterous, but whatever. That's a that's a different story. <laughs> another podcast. Yeah, another podcast. I think Democrats are reluctant to do something that's so essential to getting anything done in this country the next time they're in power, like eliminating the filibuster. The filibuster is a, a, an absurd, anti-democratic, anti-majoritarian rule. It's not even it's not in the Constitution. It's not even a law passed by Congress. It's just an internal rule of the U.S. Senate. And there's no uh, there's no really no other legislature in the world that requires a supermajority to pass a routine legislation. And if Democrats get into power, like it's pretty it's pretty difficult to imagine Democrats getting to 60 votes in 2021. So let's be wildly optimistic and say they're at you know 56 in January 2021, and they get into office and you know and it's like President Warren, President Sanders, President Booker, I don't know whoever it's going to be, and they're like, let's do this debt-free college stuff, man. Let's like let's let's reform the healthcare system. Let's uh, let's do criminal justice reform. Like how, who's in from the Republican Party? Susan Collins, are you in? You know, like so any Republicans going to vote? No, like they're not going to get anyone okay? because Republicans demonstrated in the early Obama era that they were willing to vote against legislation as a block, even though that legislation was explicitly designed as a compromise. So it's just, it's unthinkable to me that the next Democratic administration would be able to get anything done if they don't do something as simple as get rid of the filibuster. Like that is just like, that's like stage one. And so I'm a little bit worried that it's going to take them some time to figure that out. You know, that the next president will do what Obama did, which is kind of not figure out in the nick of time that Republicans were never going to work with him. I respect the underlying sort of philosophy that Obama had. Go back and read his books. It's like suffused with this stuff, but he like he really wanted to work with the other party and it just, it was never going to happen. Um, and so I'm afraid that it will take Democrats too long to figure out that they have to play hardball or else they will end up in the same place that Republicans are in right now where they look weak. You know, they look feckless. And it's just, it's especially problematic when you have control of all three branches of government and you still can't really get anything done. So there's a there is there is a remaining stage of escalation here. And I think Democrats are eventually gonna understand that unless they wanna lose power, they have to get rid of the filibuster. Unless they wanna lose power, they gotta make DC and Puerto Rico states. Maybe the right thing is not enough for them. Uh, maybe it needs to be naked self-interest, but eventually I think that the, I think that the party will realize that unless they play the same kind of hardball that's been played against them for the last 10 years. They're not going to be in power for very long. Like we'll 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 regard twenty one to twenty three as like a fluke brought by Donald Trump, and then we'll then we'll just start losing again. For our listeners out there who are intrigued by your ideas, who want to make a difference, what can they actually do? What steps can they take to make these reforms a reality? You know, I mean, steps one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven are like elect Democrats steps <laughs> to electoral cycles. Like, do whatever you can, volunteer. You know, swing left, indivisible, DSA, like whoever you want to work with. Locally, it's incredibly important to get, you know, Democrats or progressives or people running on fusion tickets in New York, working families party, whatever you want. You know, that's stuff like nothing in this book can happen if, we, if Republicans win the next two elections. Uh, we'll be, at, you know, we'll be at square zero. There really are organizations that already exist working on a lot of these issues. For the Supreme Court, it's called Fix the Court for proportional representation in the House. Uh, there's fair vote. Uh, there are active and robust statehood movements for both Puerto Rico and, and D.C., um, if you live in those territories, you can join those movements. You can um, you can try to uh, push Congress to vote on it. So, and and for the voting rights stuff, there's uh, there's a lot of different organizations that work on this question. But but one of the best ones in my mind is the Brennan Center for Justice at, at NYU. So you can join these groups. Um, you can work with them. There's they hold events locally. 
attend those events, call your representatives, put the stuff on their radar. I think we're starting to see some movement on a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm heartened. I've never seen anyone in my whole life care about gerrymandering. And now it's like front page news, uh, and a thing that the activist left really cares about. And the fact that people care about how district lines are drawn for the U.S. House of Representatives, which is pretty arcane stuff when you think about it, is evidence to me that people can be people can be convinced to care about a lot of these things. And then they you have to hold your representatives accountable. And the best way to hold your representatives accountable is to become one of them. Uh, is, you know, just run for office, run for local office, run for the state legislature. The more people that we have committed to progressive change, committed to dismantling some of these some of these barriers to progressive power in the country the better off we'll be. Like the less that we need the activists to be constantly mobilized and the more that we have activists actually running the country, that would be that would be really transformative in my mind. So there's no easy answer to that question. It's really, it's a multifaceted set of ways to engage with the process to, to get these ideas out into the public. If you're a writer, write about them, uh, you know, put an op-ed in your newspaper, you know, uh, this kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's really anything you can do, you know, use your platform, use your social networks to, to get the word out about some of this stuff. And buy my book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's where I was going next. Where can folks order your book and where can they find you online? Sure. So the book should be available. And uh, as, as the publisher used, uh, likes to say, you know, wherever books are sold, I've been seeing it in a lot of independent bookstores in Chicago. Suggest to me it's, it's probably out there. The book is distributed by uh, the publishers, Melville House Publishing, but they're, they're distributed by Random House. So they have a good network. You should be able to walk into a Barnes & Noble and see a couple of copies there. If you don't, uh, there's lots of places to buy books. Uh, you can buy it directly from the publisher at Melville House. You can buy it from Powell's, uh, you can buy it from Books a Million. You know, if all other options have been extinguished, you can go to Amazon and buy it there. But it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to find. Just follow me on Twitter, uh, at David Amazon Michael Ferris. I talk about this stuff a lot on Twitter. There's a link to my webpage. There's a link to, to a, a place with a lot of different options to buy the book. And I'd love to engage with your Twitter's uh, both a terrifying hellscape, but also occasionally fun. So... <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I really appreciate you joining us to have this conversation. Thanks. I, I had a great time uh, chatting through Jordan. And thanks so much for having me on the show. Of course. Now to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.